Now we come once more to consider the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We return, I say, to this most important and most interesting statement, because the apostle, here at the very end of his letter to the Ephesians, impresses this upon his upon their minds with unusual force. And he does so, of course, because this is one of the great problems, if not the greatest problem of all in the Christian life, this battle which we all have to wage against the powers of evil, the devil and the forces that follow him. We've been looking at it a number of Sunday mornings, and we have seen something of the origin and the nature of these powers. And then we've gone on to consider how exactly they work and how they operate. And we have seen that they work even upon nature, that they have power likewise over the minds of men and over our moral natures and even over our bodies. This is clearly taught in the scripture. And then last Sunday morning we were looking at it a little more generally as we see the influence of these powers in the nations. It's to be seen clearly in the history of the empires and nations in the Bible. It's seen outside the Bible. We were considering the causes of war and what the Bible teaches with respect to the duty of Christians in such a situation. And then the final confidence which the Bible gives us with regard to the ultimate outcome of it all. Well, now then, we continue this morning, and we are still dealing with the, the way in which these powers work, or if you like, the manifestation, the manifestations of these satanic, evil, devilish, unclean powers and forces against which the apostle warns these Ephesians and through them all of us. It's no use considering how we are to fight these things unless we are aware of something concerning their nature and the way in which they tend to operate. And so we have to come back again to this this morning. Now, the subject can be summed up very generally under the title of the designation of demonology. That is the term, the technical term, that is generally given to such uh, treatments or to such considerations of this subject, demonology. Now, it's a very large subject. Uh, there may be some in this congregation who are wondering why uh, in a Christian service this matter should be dealt with at all. Are we animated merely by a sense of curiosity or a mere intellectual interest? Well, I can assure you, that we are not. There uh, are many who take up such an interest, and it's a very fascinating study. 
this whole question of the occult and this great question of psychic phenomena. There's a great deal of attention being paid to that today. But we are not interested in it from that standpoint at all. We are interested in it merely as it affects us and our Christian life and living. Why then are we looking at it? Well, the first reason is this, that there is a sense in which we cannot truly understand the Bible unless we do this. There are so many references to these things in the Bible. Take what I read this morning from the book of Deuteronomy. It's but one of a large number of examples that I could have taken. Take your book of Daniel. You really can't understand that book and realize what God enabled Daniel to do unless we know something about these astrologers and wise men and seers and so on, who were called by the king of Babylon to try to solve the problem of his dreams. The references are so constant, I say, in the Old Testament and in the New, that there is a sense in which we can't read our Bibles intelligently unless we know something about these forces and powers. But then I can add to that this, that according to the apostles' specific teaching at this point, to be unaware of these powers is to mean almost for certain that we shall be defeated by them. Ignorance is one of the greatest causes of stumbling. And there are so many people who are ignorant of these things that they become their innocent and unconscious victims. In other words, it is essential that we should know about this, and I'll give you a further reason. We are told in the Scriptures to prove and to test the spirits. We are told that there are two types of spirits, the Holy Spirit, the angelic powers that are still subservient to God and who do his behest, but there are evil forces and powers and spirits who are extremely able the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians that the devil is able to transform himself into an angel of light. He's as subtle and as clever as that. And we are all exposed to false experiences. We are surrounded by the teaching of various cults. Heresies are always ready to insinuate themselves. So nothing is more important than that we should be able to test and to prove the spirits. Every spirit is not of God says the Apostle John. Hence the importance of knowing something about these evil forces and powers. It's not a matter of intellectual curiosity. It is something which is essential to the living of the Christian life. But then in addition to that, you cannot read about the pagan nations which were surrounding the children of Israel without coming across this. It was the characteristic of their life that they dealt in these things and were subject to these powers. So if you want to understand something of the history of antiquity, as you find it in the Bible and as you find it in secular literature, you must know something about this. And indeed you will find that there are certain pagan, backward, unenlightened nations in the world even today who are still subject to these things. We send out missionaries, we are interested in them. If we want to have an intelligent interest in their work, we must know something about these forces and powers which they see operating in a certain open manner, such as is described 
in the pages of the Old Testament. So it's essential for all these reasons. And then you will find also that it's a prominent feature in the history of the Middle Ages particularly. You read your secular history books and you read about the attitude of witchcraft, which continued even until the 18th century. And in order to have an intelligent interest in a thing like that, we must know something about it. Much of the life of the Middle Ages is to be understood, I say, in the light of these beliefs and ideas and creeds and influences and powers that were then so manifest. But, and this is to me the most important reason of all, there are certain tendencies which are becoming increasingly evident and obvious in this modern world of ours that compels us to consider these matters. This new interest in astrology, in spiritism, and various other cults and false teachings and doctrines of devils, as the Apostle Paul calls them. There is no question but that there is a, a marked uh, revival of interest in these things. And as Christian people, we are subject to them. They're so specious. They're so spurious. They come and uh, they make a pretense of being friends. Now then, I say, as we value ourselves and the health of our Christian lives, it is imperative that we should know something about these matters. Very well. It's a large subject, I say, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. I'm merely going to give a kind of bird's eye view of some of these manifestations of the power of these evil forces. And uh, it seems to me that the best kind of classification is something like this. Let us look, first of all, at the general activity of these evil forces and powers. Then we can go on and look at their unusual activities. Then we can consider voluntary submission to these powers. And lastly, involuntary submission to these powers, or if you prefer it, dominance by these powers. Now, I've attempted that classification. It's extremely difficult to classify this subject. There are various books that deal with it, uh, and they all have some sort of a classification. But it's quite clear that uh, you can't have any watertight divisions between these uh, various groups. One tends to pass over into the other. We can't help that. As far as I can work it out, this seems to me to be the best kind of uh, classification of the subject. Now then, let's take this first one. The general activity of these evil, unclean spirits, forces, powers, and factors with which we have to deal. Now, there is one thing which is common to all these different uh, ways in which these powers of evil work. They all tend to work upon one major idea, and that is the desire to know the future. That seems to be innate in the human race. We want to know the future. What's my future going to be? Am I going to be happy? What's going to happen to me? Now, that is innate in human nature. I have no doubt it's entirely the result of the fall of man. Man, as the result of sin, is dissatisfied. 
He feels he was made for something bigger, something better, but he hasn't got it. There's a dis-ease in all of us by nature. And uh, this uh, particularly applies to the future. We want the future to be better. We want it to be brighter. We want, to, we want it to be happier. The human race is always looking ahead to the future. And now these evil forces and powers, being well aware of that, of course begin to play directly upon it. They stimulate it. They encourage it. And they do so by claiming to be able to foretell the future, to forecast the future. And indeed, they will go further and claim that they can even influence the future and determine the future. And it is in this way that they have exercised such a tyranny over the lives of individuals and nations in past centuries. It is by doing this, you see, they're able to dominate the life of people because they feel that uh, having this force and this power, well, we must uh, placate them, we must please them, we must observe them, and we must obey them. And so they exercise this evil, this malign and nefarious influence upon the human race in Zen. Very well, that is the general characteristic. But let's glance briefly at some of the particular operations of this influence and this power. First, you have a, a kind of being that is described as a, a seer or a soothsayer. Here is a type of individual that, that claims this uh, hidden occult knowledge, this ability to know things about us and to know about the future. There where you read about them uh, constantly in various books of the Old Testament. Such people, soothsayers, wise men. Uh, some of them were called prophets and called themselves prophets. Now they made a livelihood out of this. It was their business. They claimed this exceptional power and thus they became known. And people went to them and began to consult them. You see, the whole thing is so obviously the result of sin. Sin leads to an inordinate interest in self. Self-centeredness, self-importance. And it's because of that we want to know what we are going to be, what's going to happen to us, what great good fortune is coming, and all uh, the brightness of our future. Now, these men claim, and these women claim, that they have this ability and power. The modern form of this, of course, is what is called fortune-telling. And all that goes under the heading of clairvoyance and so on. It's all a claim that the future can be foreseen, foretold, catered for certain things prevented, and so on. And under this category also, we've got to put what are called psychic phenomena. There are certain people who claim that they have what are called psychic powers. It's not something that they develop. It's not something that they produce. They find they've got it, they say. And let us grant and admit this, that uh, there are certain people who most definitely have unusual and exceptional powers. There's a great deal of attention being paid to this today. There are what are called extrasensory phenomena, ESP, or what some call the psi, psi phenomena. 
These have been investigated in a very scientific manner. People who can tell the number of the next card that is coming. People that can tell what a man is thinking at a distance. Uh, mesmerism. All these things. Telepathy. The awareness that some people have of what is happening to somebody dear to them or maybe at the other end of the world. Now, that's the kind of thing about which I am speaking. There have been people who have uh, claimed to possess and to have undoubtedly possessed these powers throughout the long history of the human race. But you notice that I'm putting them all under the category of demonology because that is what the Bible does. They have a, an appearance and a veneer of scientific learning at the present time. I'm not disposed uh, to criticize the investigation of these things. Indeed, I think there's a great deal to be said for that, only on condition that we've got some standard by which to evaluate. And the tragedy is that so many who are evaluating have no standard at all. In other words, they haven't got the standard of the Scriptures. For the Scriptures prohibits all these things, as we saw in that quotation at the beginning from the book of Deuteronomy. Well, now then, there is one great category. And as you see, this is something which is obviously uh, returning as an influence in this modern world of ours. Then take a second big heading, astrology. Here is a very ancient cult again, astrology. What does it mean? Well, in its essence, it means this that it is believed that our lives are influenced and determined very largely by the influence of the stars and these heavenly bodies upon us. Now, there is no doubt as to the origin of this. It's sheer paganism. You see, it reverts back to this, that every one of these stars was a god, a divine, a heavenly power. And each one of them was able to influence the people in the world. The stars are above us, you see, they're looking down above us. So primitive people in Sedan sunk in the degradation that followed the fall. They began to think that these were gods. Now, they don't all put it as crudely as that today. But the foolish, childish, pathetic notion has persisted that somehow or another these have an influence. So it's very important to know under which star you were born which month you were born, it's going to influence you, determines your character. And there are people who rush avidly to certain popular newspapers just to see what's going to happen to them this day, all determined by the stars, by these influences. Astrology is returning, obviously, in popularity. And people are making uh, fat livings out of the exercise of this extraordinary, pathetic and crude uh, belief. I leave it at that. But what is so interesting is that in an age like this, which claims to be too intelligent to be Christian, and which is rarely faintly amused at people who still go to places of worship, people who claim sophistication, are so many of them turning to this kind of thing. It's astonishing to gather people of eminence and of ability who rarely believe something in this. It just shows you the emptiness of the soul apart from God. How man in sin and in his disease will clutch at anything which seems to give him a hope and a sense of security. And then the next I would refer to is uh, what is generally described as black magic. Now you'll find that in the story of Egypt, in the time of Moses, 
It's something that was in the life of all the ancient nations. You get it, I say today, in pagan lands. What does this mean? Well, now, here is a claim to some unusual power. The power to do things. Not simply the matter of knowledge and of foreseeing and of foretelling, but it's, it's claimed further that there is an ability to do things. Now, magic, ordinary magic... Is cleverness, it's, 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 uh, its ability, it's, its subtlety in manifestation, but black magic uh, goes beyond that. It claims that it is given a, a power by some unseen spirit, some unseen influence. Now, witchcraft comes under this heading. You notice that it was one of the things listed by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5. It's one of the works of the flesh, witchcraft. It was a terrible problem. In the ancient world, it is becoming a great problem in the modern world. It was rampant, of course, in the Middle Ages. Now, uh, what they claim is something like this, that by the use of certain means, sometimes a stick, sometimes a crystal, and sometimes the organs of various animals, they are able to arrive at a knowledge of matters of vital interest and importance. Let me give you one quotation from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 21. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He wanted to know what to do. So he stood at the parting of the ways, and there he used this divination. He made his arrows bright. They sometimes used arrows or sticks. And it depended, you see, which way these went. They believed they had to let them loose, and then these powers would determine the direction. It's like turning a wheel. It's like spinning something, and it stops at the right point. He made use of these arrows. He consulted with images. Here he probably used mirrors. Or he used something which had belonged to some person now dead, who had claimed some unusual occult power. And then the last thing we are told about him is this. He looked in the liver. In other words, it was believed that uh, some extraordinary power resided in the liver. So they would kill an animal and get out the fresh liver, and by use of this liver, they claimed that they received this power and this instruction and this knowledge. Now, this has persisted throughout the centuries. People have believed in the magical power of different organs of the body. And so you take them from an animal and you apply them to a person and you get rid of a disease or you get rid of a spell and so on. Now, that's a part of witchcraft. They claimed this uh, superhuman power, claimed to be able to travel from place to place without walking and without running and so on. And furthermore, they claimed that they could influence others, that they could cast spells upon animals and upon human beings and upon even inanimate objects. Why am I giving you all these details? Well, here's one reason. These are the kind of things that have held the human race in bondage. And one of the most glorious victories of Christianity always has been to deliver people from belief in such things and from the influence of certain unseen powers and forces. I'm old enough to remember somewhat of the relics of such beliefs. The power to cast a spell 
the power to turn cream sour, the power to influence an animal in giving birth, a cow or any such animal, it was believed that these people had powers to influence even animals in that way, and substances, and still more, of course, human beings. And so persons believed that they were under a spell that had been cast upon them and dwelt and spent their time in misery. The ancient pagan world was subject to this. There are countries today, there are nations, peoples, who are held in bondage by this. Here's one of the mightiest arguments for the missionary enterprise, that men and women may be delivered from all this. And there's only one thing that can deliver them, that's Christianity. I prove that in this way, that in this country we've got the education, we've got our supposed scientific knowledge, but people are going back to these things. There is only one thing that can give deliverance, and that is the power of the gospel. But these uh, persons claim further that they can heal diseases, cure people from sicknesses. Now, there is no question but that they can sometimes. Uh, I raise the question as to what exactly they're curing, as to whether they're curing any organic condition or merely some imaginary or functional state. But at any rate, they can produce certain phenomena, and the result is that they're able to tyrannize over the minds of men and women. Now, you'll find all that again in the book of Daniel. The king consulted, the, the Chaldeans consulted his astrologers as well as his wise men. They should have been able to interpret the dream, but they couldn't. It was Daniel alone who was able to do this. Now, there is my first heading. I call all that some of the general manifestations of the working and the operation of these evil powers and forces and factors. But let me say a word about the second, which is the unusual activity of these powers. Now here again we come to a most extraordinary subject. What am I referring to? Well, I'm referring to things like this. You'll read about them occasionally in the newspapers, and sometimes they can be a very real problem. Have you read about poltergeists? Have you read about haunted houses? Have you read about ghosts? Now, here is a most extraordinary phenomenon. It is no part of Christianity to deny facts. And there are certain facts which seem to me to be well established. There's a very learned society which was established in 1882, the Society for the Investigation of Psychic or Psychological Problems, the Society for Psychic Research. Now, th these phenomena have been investigated by that society and others. And there can be no doubt that certain unusual things do happen at times. For instance, you hear about uh, people living in a house and their life being made impossible there. Why? Well, because certain objects, inanimate objects, begin to move. Now, I'm mentioning this because I know of a very well-authenticated case of this that happened in the case of a Christian minister and which was entirely solved by the application of Christian teaching. The thing sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But it literally happened. Objects, chairs would move. Pictures would fall off the wall. Other objects would be found moving in the house. Certain noises would be heard. Rappings upon the wall and so on. 
and the life of the family made well-nigh impossible. And you've read of haunted houses. You've heard of people who claim to have seen appearances. Let's call them ghosts in general. There are people who still claim that. Now, I know that a large number of these have been explained quite simply as the result of the investigation of the Society for Psychical Research. But there is always this residuum that they cannot explain, and which they, as men of science, are prepared to grant is beyond their understanding. Well, of course it's beyond their understanding, because in the main they don't believe in principalities and powers, in the rulers of the darkness of this world, in spiritual wickedness in high places. We are told in the scripture that there are such powers, and they are able to do these unusual things. Why? Nobody knows. But the fact that there are such phenomena, it seems to me, is entirely beyond any reasonable dispute. You say, but I've never seen anything like Perhaps you haven't. There are many things that you and I don't know. There are more things in heaven and earth or ratio than have entered into your philosophy. The mere fact that we haven't experienced them, thank God, doesn't mean that they don't exist. There, then, is what I'm calling the unusual manifestation of these powers. You see, it goes beyond what you have in your soothsayers and fortune tellers and in your astrologers and people like that. Here is something happening apart from human agencies altogether. There are powers outside men that are doing these things and thus creating problems. And that brings me to my third general heading, which I've put under this title, Voluntary Submission to These Evil Powers and Forces. Now, here is perhaps the most important aspect of all this. This is what is normally called spiritualism, but which should be called spiritism. This, I say, is perhaps the most important at the present time. Let's look at it like this, then. Let's take it, first of all, historically. The first thing we have to realize, there's nothing new about this. There are some people who seem to think it's quite new. It isn't. You'll find a great deal about it in the Old Testament. Necromancers were referred to in the passage I read to you from Deuteronomy 18. It was one of the things that were denounced. All that I've been speaking about was denounced in that passage in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 14. Soothsaying, fortune-telling, the consulting of images, astrologers, and this, which is called consulting the dead, or departed spirits. That's the meaning of the word necromancy. It's a consulting of those who are dead. Now, it's, it's a very old phenomenon. It's something which has been happening right through the known history of the human race. Here it is, I say, in abundance in the Old Testament. And as you read the story, the history of pagan nations, you will find that they likewise indulged in it to a very great extent. You've still got it. The ancestor worship of Confucianism is, I believe, a part of this very self-same thing, though it doesn't put itself in that particular form. This uh, notion, you see, has persisted that somehow or another those who've been in this world before us can still influence it and can help us. 
And it is this inordinate desire for knowledge of the future, for my well-being, self-concern, a desire that all should go well. I can't, men can't. Well, what if the spirits of the departed can help? So, you see, it has persisted. But then it's quite true to say that it did die down for a considerable length of time. And especially after the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation cleared away a great deal of all this that I'm talking about. It's, it's a most wonderful proof of the teaching of the Bible that historically, when the light of this knowledge came in, when the knowledge concerning the Holy Spirit came in, all this went out. And there was a period when there was very little heard about spiritism, or what is called spiritualism. But unfortunately, a new interest returned in this in the last century. My friends from the United States will forgive me for pointing out that it started in the United States, about 1843. A curious phenomenon began in a city, a town in the New York State. People began to shake and to tremble. They were called the Shakos. And that is really the origin, the beginning of this new modern interest in spiritism. And then there was a family of a man called John D. Fox, who lived in a place called Hydeville in New York State. His daughters began to exhibit certain phenomena in 1848. And it is from that time that this modern interest and craze in spiritism returned. It spread very rapidly, so rapidly, that as I've already told you, uh, the uh, Society for Psychic or Psychical Research was set up in 1882. The thing was so much written about and talked about. People began to say, well, now we must discover the truth concerning this. Is it all bogus? Is it all pretense? Is it all a sham? Or is there something in it? So this learned society, consisting mainly of scientific people, was set up in 1882, and in America a similar one in 1888. But of course it was the First World War that really gave it its greatest impetus. And uh, certain prominent men became attached to it and became believers in it. There was a great scientist called Sir William Crookes. He was a great chemist. The Crookes Laboratories get their name from him. Sir William Crookes was an undoubtedly unusually able scientist. He became a firm believer in this. The same applies, as you know, to Sir Oliver Lodge, who was a great uh, scientist, a physicist. And it's equally true of an able man, originally a doctor, and then a novelist, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Now, these three men, honestly, quite sincerely, and genuinely, were convinced of the truth of this. And it was as the result of the writing of their books that the thing became so common and so widespread. And by today, it has spread so much that uh, it's come into the Christian church. And the Christian church has a society for the investigation of psychic phenomena of its own. And it is believed in very widely. It has its churches, it has its journals, and it has its devotees in all ranks of society. Now, what is the cause of all this? I've already been answering the question. The main desire, of course, is the desire for comfort. So many men were killed in that First World War, leaving fathers, mothers, widows, children, 
Suddenly, they went out of life. And here were these poor people left. Now there's nothing more natural, more instinctive than the desire for comfort and especially the desire to know whether the beloved was all right, what was happening to him. He'd been taken suddenly. It wasn't that he'd got old or died as a result of a disease. Suddenly cut off. And oh, the, the absence, the desire to know what was happening to him and still more the desire of continuing fellowship. And here, you see, was a teaching who said it's possible. It is this instinctive desire for comfort, for fellowship, and still more, very often, the desire to know what to do. Imagine a young widow left to herself, perhaps with a business or something to look after her children, had relied upon her husband. Suddenly he's gone. If only he could still guide her or help her or influence her. Now then, that's the kind of cause of all this. And, of course, today it is carried still further. It's my duty to put these things before you. Because there is this society, I say, in the Christian church, the secretary of which is an ordained clergyman in the Anglican church, who doesn't hesitate in a book that he has written to say this, that a belief in this is more or less essential if one really wants to understand and believe the Bible. He says in that book that he was trained as a theological student and trained to dismiss most of the Bible, didn't believe it, especially everything that severed of the supernatural. He was a typical liberal modernist in his theology. But now that he's become a spiritist, or what he would call a spiritualist, he's come to understand the Bible in a way that he never could before. As a student in his theological college, he was told to ridicule all he read in the Old Testament about angels suddenly appearing to Abraham or to Jacob. Angels, no such things as angels. But he says, now, of course, he has no difficulty at all. In his spiritualistic circles, he's seen materializations. He has seen appearances. He still doesn't believe in angels, but he believes in some spirit forces that can materialize themselves and give appearances. So he's now able to accept all that he reads about the angels appearing uh, to Abram, Jacob's dream that night, and the ladder and so on. It used to be utter rubbish to him. And Jacob struggling with the men at Peniel, just an overwrought imagination. The man was in a psychological state, if not in a psychopathic state, he used to think. But he doesn't think that now. Jacob was an unusually psychic person. And these persons have this power of producing these materializations. There was undoubtedly some personality there with whom Jacob struggled. He can accept it all. He used to dismiss it. But thanks to spiritism, he can now believe it and accept it all. Take the question of prophecy. Of course, he didn't believe in prophecy. No learned man believes in the power to foretell. All that must be dismissed from the Bible. The liberal doesn't believe in prophecy. This was just uh, politics and men able to foretell the future. And we've imagined all this foretelling and so on. But says this man, thanks to spiritism, of course, I've come now to know that the whole thing is probably true. The so-called prophets were just these psychic individuals, natural mediums. And they, they have this ability. There's no question about it. They say, we are getting it today. There was a recent symposium in a, a popular newspaper. Somebody was good enough to send me the cuttings of them all, which just says that all this is happening now. Men are able to give information. So he says, you know, the spiritism has brought me back to accept what the Bible teaches about prophecy. 
and so on. But of course, it becomes most serious of all when you come to our blessed Lord himself. For here their teaching is that the same thing was true of him, but to an unusual degree. He was an exceptionally psychic person. He had the ability of communicating with the unseen realm more than anybody else. Hence his authority. Hence what are called his miracles. Hence his power to foretell. And so on. And they say the same about Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost was that these people suddenly entered into this psychic state. Some of them in particular. And all the powers claimed for the apostles. They would say were nothing but this extraordinary power that these people have. And they would explain subsequent events in the church. Revivals. And unusual persons with unusual preaching power and various other gifts along the same lines. And furthermore, of course, they go on to tell us that if we only believed this, we'd get rid of many of our problems. Why? Well, these are their claims. The claim is, you see, essentially this. That through these people who are called mediums, these people who are born with these innate extraordinary powers, you can communicate with the departed dead, with the souls of the departed dead. Perhaps your own loved ones, perhaps somebody else whom you don't know, but who has gone and who is still interested in this world and ready to help it. And these departed spirits come to us and help us, they say, in different ways. You read about table wrapping, messages given, a man holds a pen in his hand, just lets a pen rest upon his fingers. He's not even holding it. And a message is written. He's not writing it. He doesn't know what's being written even. But that pen is being used. It's simply resting. And there a message is given. Now you may have read about all this. And then they claim they get direct messages from these different mediums. And what is the value of all this? Well, they say it gives us information about the state of the beloved. About their condition. What's happening to them. How they're living. Life in the unseen realm. It also gives us facts about ourselves. It helps us to know our own future. It warns us against certain dangers. And it helps us to answer problems. There's a very well-known spiritist who claims that he's able to heal diseases. He says that he is controlled, if I remember rightly, by the departed spirit of the great pastor, Louis Pasteur, the man who really started the whole science of bacteriology the real first discoverer of germs. This man claims that the departed spirit of Louis Pasteur gives him information, enables him to diagnose a patient. He's not a trained medical man. He's given the knowledge, he says, by Pasteur, and is likewise enabled to produce this healing. And finally, they say that it is possible even for these departed spirits to appear before us, materialized, so that you literally see them. You really see, and this is where the thing is so subtle, because they claim this must be an absolute proof that it is the very person whom you're longing to see. The materialization of that spirit takes place. A kind of spirit, astral body, is formed round the spirit so that you see and you recognize the person. Well, there it is. I've simply stated the case for it this morning. And we've got to leave it at that point for this morning. This is one of the things that is denounced in the scriptures from beginning to end. But it isn't enough just to say that. God willing, I hope to go on next Sunday morning to give you the scriptural answer to this in detail, as far as we can, and to produce 
the reasons and the arguments why as Christian people we should not only touch this kind of thing, but we should also be aware of it and be careful before armed. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Is the world going back to this kind of bondage? There are evidences that it is. And that in all its devilish subtlety, it is trying to insinuate itself even into the Christian church. There are well-known popular names connected with all this, which say that at last they understand and can believe in the resurrection of Christ and his post-resurrection appearances. They never used to be able to believe this, and they always used to say it was nonsense. They said he didn't rise literally from the grave, and he didn't come into the room and appear to people. But now they say, thanks to these spiritist phenomena, they can believe this. Of course Christ came into the room where the disciples were gathered together. The doors and windows, as it were, were shut. He appeared. Of course these spirit bodies and these materializations, they can do that sort of thing. So they now claim, you see, that they believe in the post-resurrection appearances. But it's a lie. It's not what's taught in the scriptures. It's not the same thing at all. It's this counterfeit of the devil. It's these powers, these forces, counterfeiting. Very well. You see why it is important for us to know something about these things. It is ignorant Christian people who become the dupes of these things. Suddenly they're bereaved. And somebody comes along and says, I'm a Christian like you, look here. I can give you great comfort. You needn't bear this burden alone. Or when you're taken desperately ill, you may feel this morning this has been a sheer waste of time. Ah, yes, you're well at the moment. And your loved ones are around and about you and everything's all right. You wait, my friend, until suddenly your little world is shattered by something. And you're broken-hearted and desperate and don't know what to do. And somebody will come and say, look here, I can help you. And if you don't know about these things, the devil is an angel of light and his followers transforming themselves in the same way will be able to come and will... Snare you, the snare of the devil, Paul calls it, in writing to Timothy. And you'll become a victim and a captive. And it can lead to untold, terrible results. Very well. We must consider these matters. We must know about them. Why? In order that we may see that we must be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That the only place of safety is to put on the whole armor of God himself. Amen.